We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse through their industry. Pulse through their industry. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. Have to be consistent. You got to keep the big picture that hey, we're changing the world. We're changing. The league presents Electric People. Welcome to another episode of Electric People. I'm excited for today. We're sitting here with David Bywater. Thanks for giving us the time. Excited to dive in. It's good to be with you guys anytime, anywhere. I like it. Man, he's been tough to get a hold of, right? You've been hard to pin down. We've been sitting in this room a long time. <laughs> look, I know I know. if we look at the number of texts that I've originated versus the ones you've responded, I think you guys are the ones harder to get a hold of than yeah, me. Yeah, I'm so. always ignoring your texts. That's that's one thing. <laughs> Just dodging those. Um, so for you guys that don't know David or haven't had the chance to sit down and talk with him, um, we're excited for this conversation. Um, David went to Harvard Business School. He's got a long career, uh, worked at Bain, ACS, Xerox, was a COO of Vivint Inc., current CEO of Vivint Solar. Um, he's written pieces and been mentioned in major publications, including The Economist most recently. It was, uh, it was fun. Which is awesome. Yeah, lifelong, one of my favorite periodicals of my entire life, and to have my name in The Economist was uh, a surprise. And Kind of flattering. So yeah, they made us cool. pay to read it. We even paid to read it. So. <laughs> you bought it? $12. That's so good. Yeah. Hey, so now we got it. It's a premium read. Yeah, it's a premium read. I'm going to Venmo you that. Just FYI. <laughs> Charge me back. <laughs> what I think a lot of people don't know is that you're an avid uh, fly fisherman, home remodeler, motorcycle mechanic, Land Rover enthusiast. Kind of a renaissance man, huh? English bulldog lover. Yeah. English no. bulldog, bulldog lover. lover. We missed that one. Yeah, that's all right. But that was one we missed. Hey, I want to get right into this because... When you started with us, uh, many of us didn't know you, but you grew up in Logan, Utah. Yeah. Um, lifelong Republican, right? Yeah. Your dad was like, I mean, just very conservative yep. family. Now you're the leader of one of the largest renewable energy companies in the world, mm. Vivint Solar. Uh, you know, it seems like a bit of a conundrum here. You know, we've got this lifelong Republican leading a very green energy, uh, you know, company. So how, how did this even happen? Like what, what, walk us through where you're at with this. Well, I'll tell you what, um, life takes you down different paths and I am super happy with the path that I've gone down. Um, and it's interesting. I, I often refer to myself as the accidental activist and, uh, I don't think I've ever enjoyed my career as much as I'm enjoying it right now. I absolutely love what we stand for. I love our leaders. I love our employees. I love our customers. I love the mission that we have as a company. Um, and I'm so lucky to be part of this. And it's interesting. I, I am clearly a very strong independent now. Um, and <laughs> so this changed your whole political view. Yeah, it has. Um, it's just because, like, you know, our company, it's amazing because we really do do good. Like, I mean, I've, ne I've run a lot of companies and I've been associated with a lot of great, great organizations. And I've never been part of a company where my kids tell me you have to win, right? You have to be successful. And um, you know, I've also never been part of a company where 90% of Americans uh, say you need more of what we sell, not less. So they want more solar, not less solar. And um, you think about it, you actually are saving the planet and you're providing thousands and thousands of jobs. Um, and you work with a culture that's phenomenal, that's young, energetic, who are inclined to go change the world for good. Like, it doesn't get much better than that. In fact, I can't think of a scenario where it's better than that. And uh, I absolutely love what we, what we do. Um, it is rewarding personally. 
and it's rewarding from a career perspective. So yeah, I love the fact that I found this and I get a chance to be part of it. So what does accidental activist mean? I like that, the acti accidental activist. Well, it's, uh, you know, what was interesting was the day after the election, the presidential election, I woke up. And as many of you know, uh, that day, um, our local utility here in Utah <coughs> had proposed some um, changes that would essentially destroy residential solar in our home state. So here we are uh, at the epicenter of this revolution and our home state and the local utility was going to do everything in their power to basically pull the rug out from underneath us. And uh, I thought to myself, wow, this is uh, not on my watch. And literally that morning I called up, I think the top 10, smaller, but top 10 uh, residential solar companies in Utah. I found out the names of their CEOs. I had not had a conversation with any of them at that point. Mm. And I said, guys, are you aware of what's happening? I'm David Bywater um, and they all, they all knew who I was. And uh, so I got to know them a little bit and I said, um, here's what's going on and we got to do something. And so uh, if you're on this call, I'm gonna have this call every day at 8 a.m. I invite you to join and we're gonna organize the people of Utah and we're gonna go right this wrong. Um, and I said, if you're on this call, I need a check for $20,000. No way. Uh, we gotta go fund the legal campaign to go fight this. And uh, my next call was to the governor's office. And then I called the uh, eight most influential people I knew in the state of Utah um, that have uh, enormous influence. And I said, here's the situation. We create more jobs than I think any other industry. Um, the people want this, it's a great thing. And, uh, and um, you know, I need your help. I think there's a wrong being uh, committed here. And within a very short period of time, the uh, governor gave us an audience. Uh, we were able to force this utility to come to the table with us. And over an eight-month process, uh, we negotiated a very complicated resolution. Um, and it took a lot of time. It took a lot of time. Uh, you had that, and then you also had the tariffs coming down on solar. And so I was out in D.C. most of the fall of 2017 out there meeting with uh, all of uh, President Trump's administration, uh, meeting with senators, meeting with uh, representatives of the House and uh, wow. trade representatives. And it wasn't what I expected to do. And uh, I just really got thrown into this political activism um, to preserve our industry and to fight for it. And, um, and that's why I became, an I, I became very passionate about it. I was surprised how personally committed I was. And um, I just realized I loved what we do. And I was going to do everything I could to right the wrongs or prevent wrongs from happening. So I became an activist. Was, was there ever like this surreal moment that you had when you were in D.C. kind of fighting for this stuff where you're like, I'm actually on the, the other side of the, the fence here yeah. fighting against people that I normally am a, you know, a proponent for, right? So Well, that's exactly right. So uh, it's a Republican administration. And here I was, you know, raised as a Republican and I'm there fighting for what I thought was an obvious answer. By the way, the, the answer that the people of America want, right? They want more solar. Right. And I was like, wait a minute, we've created, one out of every 50 jobs in 2016 created in the United States was in solar. 265,000 jobs that won't be automated and won't be outsourced. And they're spread across all the states that are pro-solar, 22 states in particular, right? And they're well-paying jobs. I'm like, this is like the dream job. You know, years and years of consulting and investment banking, these are the type of jobs you want to create.
Well, and bipartisan, right? From like bipartisan support. Should that sounds like something they would sign up for? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. anyone should sign up for it, especially the, the the Republican platform. And so, I'm like, this is just crazy that I'm having this battle. Um, why, and, why has solar yeah. become a, a political like? So we we met with um, a climate change scientist named Cameron Wake, Ty and I, a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, climate change, it's it's so funny because people don't talk about cancer as if it's a debate, right? Mm -hmm. We all know cancer is bad. And he said, climate change is bad for the earth. It's bad for the public. It's bad for everybody. And all scientists say the same thing, yet it's become this political issue. Like cancer is not a political issue. Why has solar become a political issue? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm sure you'll get a few different opinions on it. Um, I think this is an interesting world where you have to strike certain chords to win. When you win election, you win it by math. And certain things resonate with people that they're very passionate about. Other people will be passive about it. Um, and I don't know why. I, 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 I want to believe that's not a political issue for the people. I think the people right. truly have said, we want this. If you think about the growth, I think that they're voting with their wallet books and with their houses, their roofs. And I think they're supporting it in uh, grave masses. I think it's the people in power for the status quo who are fighting it. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what that battle is. Um, and, um, you know, for some, for some, I think there's only really one voice that's really saying no politically. But most people, um, we have a lot of Republicans, by the way, who support us sure. that are great friends of us, great allies, and a lot of Democrats, a lot of independents. So I think over the long term, uh, this will prevail. And we will find ourselves on the right side of history. It's just the battle we're going through right now. Well, and I think you represent a sales force that gets that. Like, you know, when I think back on uh, my own kind of conversion to the cause, you know, I, I spent a lot of time living here and drive a truck and ride motorcycles and shoot guns and things like that. Mm -hmm. But when, when you look at the problem, it looks like it's just an interesting problem to solve, right? It's such an interesting time in the world right now where we have this massive problem with climate change, right? Which gives this massive opportunity for all of us to come in and work and solve a problem and stuff. And so one of the things that, that Adam and I were talking about before is initially, I remember when you were named as CEO of the company, it wasn't David Bywater CEO, it was interim CEO. And we didn't know how long we'd have you here. And I, I don't know if you would say this, but I don't think you knew how long you would be here. So is the cause and like, uh, you know, this activism, is that part of the reason you decided to, to stick with the career and to stay here with us? Or? Part of it. Um, the, the majority of the reason was uh, not because I love being the CEO uh, or anything like that. Um, it's because when I came over, they asked me if I would come over and they said there's a need. And at first I'm like, no, no thanks. I, I just had a job and I had to finish that job and I was pretty very focused well, on the job. It was a big job. You were CEO. Big job. Of yeah, and, right? and we, were, we had a lot going on. So they said, no, we really need you to do this. And that's not inconsistent my whole career. My, I've, I've had the opportunity to run lead directly or indirectly 60 companies. And every few years, you look at my age, every few years that means I was running a set of new companies. And so change and coming in, that was definitely a pattern in my career that I've always embraced. So when they asked me to come over, I said, well, I'll come over on an interim basis. I'll do it for a few months, figure out where we're at, and then uh, you know, we'll, we'll reassess. The reason why I stayed was uh, when I came in five months later, I knew a lot more. We had to make some changes. Mm -hmm. uh, the industry had to make some changes, and we had to get better at everything we did. 
And I had probably uh, a thousand more reasons to leave after five months than I did, you know, when I first came over. Uh, the reason yeah, you why you pretty deep into the you I was pretty deep into the box. <laughs> I was pretty deep. I looked deep inside the box. Uh, the reason why I stayed was because we had four thousand employees that relied upon this company to be successful, and I believed in the cause. And I stayed because of our people. For you know, for, I'll just be completely honest. I fell in love with our people, and. Uh, I saw the potential of what we could do. I saw the changes we were making. Um, and I frankly just loved, I loved that vibe. And I knew we could be successful because we had phenomenal leaders. Uh, we had phenomenal people. We had phenomenal customers. We had phenomenal shareholders. Our, our, our uh, investors were phenomenal with us. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna roll with this one. And so I, I changed it from being interim to permanent. and. Uh, I'm really pleased with what we've done over the last two and a half years together. Yeah, it seems like those are the harder things to put in place, right? When you can get the right people, when you can get the right uh, investors, when you, those are the, hard, the right customers, those are the hard things, right? Or those are the things that some people never quite figure out. Well, you know, you know it's so back to your earlier question, it's interesting, the thing that's great about what we do on the climate change, and I learned this mm -hmm. during this process, is um, the reason why residential solar is so powerful and so important is because what we do is we help consumers become co-investors in our grid solution. Mm. Think about it, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Whether they give us money and they buy it, or we're doing a PPA and we're leasing their roof, they become co-investors. And when you think about the change, the mental change that we need to take as a society to help advance the green cause and growth, right? Having an investor is very different than having a consumer. And when you can get both of them, they're both a customer and a co-investor, their willingness to, to do the things needed for the future is so much more, they're so much more open to it. And it's really powerful. So you think about where we're going as, uh, you know, on the, on the grid side and what we'll need consumers to do, it's all the solutions behind the meter that our, our sales force is world-class at doing of helping consumers understand where they should go, why it makes sense for them to do it, and then for them to embrace it. We're just starting. And so I'm really excited the fact that we have consumers that are co-investors. So that's, I never that's, thought about that before. that's pretty powerful. Yeah, that's really cool. When you, you talked about when you first came in, you knew you had to make some changes. Yeah. From a leadership perspective, you were COO at our sister company, Vivint mm -hmm. Inc., right? I don't know how much you knew about Vivint Solar before you came over, but it's a very different business than Smart Home. It's very different. You come over as now CEO, you're the captain of the ship. One, you've got personnel changes to consider. Um, anytime a new head coach takes over a team, mm -hmm. typically they fire the whole existing staff and then they bring in their own staff, right? Because they want total buy-in on everyone they're bringing in. Yeah. But then on top of that, the solar industry as a whole was in a pretty unique uh, place. I mean, there's pretty choppy waters in the yeah. industry. You had Solar City that was you know, going through their whole thing with Tesla and everything else. Um, the solar industry as a whole, I think, was pretty, uh, yeah. I would say, um, just kind of shaky at the time, especially from a stock market perspective and all that kind of stuff. So what do you do as a CEO when you first take over? I mean, walk me through your process. Like you like get, and to your credit, I do want to say, I've never heard you say a bad word about any of your predecessors um, that have been here. In fact, you've usually said nothing but great things about them and how much they did for the business to get it to where you sort of took the baton. So anyway, Walk us through day one, like the first week, first month. What, how do you unpack this package that you've been given? 
that's a that's a naughty question, Adam. Um, <laughs> I think uh, day one is uh, you can't assume bad. Like most of our actors are rational and doing the, the best they could with what they knew, and so um, you know, for me. I knew that what I was asked to take over had built, been built upon a lot of hard you know, work, blood, sweat, and tears from those that went before me. And so it's like, they did a lot of good. Uh, like, let's make sure we preserve that good. And then the things we have to change, most people in my career, if you can help them understand why, like respect their intelligence and respect their desires to do good, just shed some light on it. You know, most people will make those decisions themselves. It's just educating them. You know, our leadership team, you know, you guys and your peers, I don't think I've ever had to really twist your arm on anything. It was simply, hey, here's where we are. Here's the situation. Here's the pros and cons. Here's my recommendation on where we should go. Uh, what do you think? And I think it must be nine out of 10 times you guys are like, we're fully on board. Or maybe it's eight out of 10 times. And two out of 10 times, you educate me and I'm like, I was wrong right? You know, I have to reassess. And you're right. You know what? Now I have more data. Let me come back to you. So it's that mutual respect. I mean, you guys are really good, world-class at what you do for a reason. Um, yeah, you can recruit, you can motivate, um, you can lead, but you also are, you can think through things really, really well. And I, I rarely have ever come across something where you guys haven't come to the same conclusion I came to, when you had the data presented to you. So, you know, you gotta respect the people. I, I've always found in my careers, out of all the jobs I've run, um, I've always found when you come in, about 20% 20, 20 of the people, you don't need them or they need to go. Um, and about 50 to 60% of the people, if you believe in them, they'll raise their game significantly. And I mean like 20 to 30%. And it's simply by capturing their hearts. If they believe that you believe in them and you respect them, and you lead them, most of them will raise their game significantly. And I think we saw that kind of across the board here at Vivint Solar, and, and uh, we got some phenomenal people. And I also knew that I didn't know anything. You know, I remember when I first, my first job, I, uh, out of college, my first job was for this consulting firm in Boston. And I just finished four years, uh, got a good degree, did well. You know, and it was this really prestigious consulting firm in Boston. They were all Ivy League kids, and there was four of us from BYU. And I'm like, uh, you know, something's different than everyone else. I'm not an Ivy League kid. I'm not a private school kid. So you're I'm nervous public, going into I'm just it. a public school kid. I'm like, I'm not going to survive here. Um, and I remember like a week into it or two weeks into it, I realized that uh, I knew nothing about business. I knew nothing. Like Even nothing. after you just got your degree? I just finished my degree. It was in economics. I'm thinking I was a smart dude. I, mean, I wasn't a 4.0, but I was pretty close to a 4.0. And I'm like, yeah. I was a TA. You know, I'm like, I, I know my stuff. I'm like, I know nothing. And I was like, holy cow. It kind of rattled my confidence. But then I did realize, I'm like, you know what? But I can learn really, really quick. And as soon as I took off that burden of not knowing everything, but learning quick, uh, my career took off. And so when you come into every business, and like here, I knew you guys knew a lot. And I had to learn and listen. So, you know, those first two months, you guys saw, I did a lot of listening. And then you just shift, sift through things, you know. Listen, I like it. Li listen, I don't like it. Listen, challenge that, right? I like this. And then you reprioritize. And then when I came back to you guys with here's the plan, I think it resonated with you guys because I, I had to listen. I think that's great. And I think, I think that's the leadership lesson. I think that's universally applicable to selling. Uh, we've always, especially with the product that we sell, if the people are properly educated, they'll usually make the right decision, right? right? right. So the, the question is, 
how do I connect and spark a relationship where we can have an educational exchange, right? But then with leadership, with running like our sales teams in our different departments and stuff, it's the same thing. Like usually um, where leaders are effective is communicating the vision or the why behind it. And then usually people, and I, we saw that when you first came in because that was, I mean, there were thousands of people that worked here yeah. that had been through multiple CEOs that we all really liked. Yeah. And it was a really great lesson in team building. And we talk a lot about leadership on this podcast. And Adam and I were talking earlier about how did he do that? <laughs> and I think the crazy thing for me was the first thing, a lot of leaders do it opposite. They come in and like, hey, I need to portray confidence. I need to tell you exactly what we're going to do. And they kind of clash with people. And it's really different. It's a different level of leader that comes in and says, hey, listen, I don't know a whole lot. You guys have all been here for a long time. You appear to be really good at your job. Be patient with me. I remember that was those were the gist of the first words you said. And then, um, you know, some of us started to learn your resume and your strengths and your ability to like pick apart and focus problems. But you all had our, our buy-in after that. And I think that's the reason that the it was so successful. Yeah, well, I'm grateful it's been successful. I think it was easy to work with you guys. Um, and uh, it's just, you know, most people, you're right. They'll make the right choice when they give them the right data. And uh, I think in our situation, we brought light to that. And uh, it was pretty easy to get consensus. We had to make a lot of changes, but you guys were, you know, instrumental in embracing that. And, and we've seen good things. And then it builds upon itself, right? Oh, that was a good decision. We're better off. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's trust the next decision. And then it just started to... Do you mind talking about some really of those, those tough decisions that you made early on um, that kind of changed the trajectory of the company? Well, you guys know, I mean, it was very public. Uh, so my first earnings call, so I'd never been a CEO before. I'd run a lot of companies, but I've never been a public CEO. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was the man in charge, but never that level with that much uh, exposure. By that, do you mean you were consulting these companies? No, no, no. So I was group president's uh, oh, CEO. Okay. So I would run, I'd run companies. I'd be the president of the company. But I was never the CEO of a public company. Mm. It was just a different mantle that comes with that. Um, and uh, so when I first came in, my first earnings call, my first earnings call, and I knew the market. We were trading, what, two bucks a share or something like that. And the market was like, you know, I don't know what they were expecting from me. And uh, I, had, uh, I had the opportunity to you know, kind of set the tone. And if you recall, it was like December, it was, was August oh, I 7th. I remember this call. I don't August remember a 7th. lot of earnings calls, but I remember this earnings, call. earnings call. And I get on there. <laughs> And I basically said, we're out, if you remember that, right? Because I'd done the math, and I was like, wait a minute, this industry is just about growth, but you have to have a company that's actually sustainable, right? It, it at the end of the day, you have to take care of your customers, right? You gotta take care of your shareholders, and you gotta take care of your employees, right? It's that simple. And you gotta have a business model that hunts. Um, if you have those four things, and you have capital, right, you can usually go make something happen. And, you know, I looked at the industry. This was the industry. And I was like, I don't think they're taking care of the customers. I don't think they're taking care of their investors. I don't think they're really taking care of their employees because if they're taking care of their employees, you're going to build a company that's going to be there forever, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's built to last. It's sustainable, right? It can self-perpetuate. Um, and we didn't have any capital. So we were out on all four, right? It was a, a X on all four. And so I just said, let's be the most sustainable, best run company. And best run doesn't mean you're the largest. I know a whole bunch of large companies that ran themselves into bankruptcy 
And this industry is very, you know, has plenty of evidence of that. So let's just make sure that we're the best run. We have the best install. We have the most successful sales force, the best per rep averages, most compliant in how we sell, right? Let's bring the most value behind the meter for our customers. Um, let's make sure that our shareholders are getting the best returns. You know, it was like, it's basically let's make the right decisions, the long-term decisions, and let's just have people buy in on it. And so that's what we've really been going after. And we've, we've really, if you think about it, we've rebuilt the whole company. Um, across capital markets, install service, sales, um, you know, uh, everything. We've redone everything. And uh, I'm really proud of where we are. I really am proud. And we got a lot to do still. We still have a, lot, well, you know, a long ways to go um, before I think that we're dominated in every space. But, you know, it started with uh, listening to our sales force. And uh, it was pretty humbling. If you guys remember that first, like that second month of the job, I did that survey to all of our DMs, and I thought to myself, you know, the DMs, they'll tell me how, what it was really like. Am I humble They're enough to listen? They're just waiting to tell yeah. you. <laughs> they were waiting to tell me. Because I was like, well, I'm going to survey all of them and ask them where we really are. And I'm like, you know, can, I, can my ego take this? Well, I've only been here for a month. You know, I can handle this. So if you remember, I did that survey, and it was kind of Fs and Ds almost on, along everything. And then, you know, I survey every six months, and today it's all A's and B's. There's one C we're still working on, right? But coming from F's and D's across the board to mostly A's, a few B's, and one C, I'm like, that's good progress. Let's just keep going. And I think the guys and the gals that work for us, if they see that we're listening and we're making progress, then they give you, comp they give you more time to keep making progress. And they just, they're more focused on the momentum and the trajectory then are we there yet? It's like, no, we like our speed and course. Let's ride this. Yeah, I think it was Phil Knight. I think it was when they, they opened the Tiger Woods building that, uh, oh no, it was at his retirement speech when he was giving his final tips and he said, always, always, always listen to the athletes. That's, and that's what we try to do, yeah. right? So. Well, and they'll tell you, that's like the answer's right there. It's same with customers when you're selling. Like if you just ask the right questions and listen, they'll tell you what direction to take them. So I, it, was, it was about, uh, I don't know, it was a f probably about a year in, I realized on our, on our website, we didn't have a, a way for customers to talk directly to me. So I changed the website and said, hey, you know, our goal is to exceed your expectations. Unfortunately, we screw up sometimes. And we do. Everyone does. Um, and I said, if we screw up, give me a chance to rectify. And I go, please write directly to me. So every week I get, you know, a few, uh, really? a few emails from consumers. And uh, I read them. And I listen to them. And then I have the team work on them and I have them report back to me on, did we fix that problem? Was it systematic? Was it one time? But if you can, if you can really you know, listen in on good input, uh, it's, you know, if you, once you have that, nourish it. And whether it's from our leadership, whether it's from our sales reps, whether it's from our consumers. And that's why I do Frontline Fridays. This last Friday, I was with the scheduling team. Um, the so week before that, Friday. I was with Frontline Fridays. Frontline Fridays is where I go and do the work of our front line for two hours on a Friday. And so I, I've been out selling, I'm not very good at it. I've been out installing, not very good at it, right? Hmm. Uh, last week, oh, actually I was with uh, Concierge two weeks ago, learned a whole bunch. Uh, I was with Dam Damage Resolutions, scheduling, and I just go and listen to our frontline employees and I either get a confirmation of what I'm hearing from their leaders or I'm getting insight that leaders aren't even aware of. And so you have to just be very, very focused on listening to those beacons of insight and, uh, and have an influence where you go. I want to talk about 
growing up a little bit and backtrack just a little bit on your professional career. Sure. Um, I know Ty touched on how the first time you applied to BYU, you didn't get in. Yeah, rejected. Um, but what I've always been most impressed is just your overall work ethic. Mm -hmm. And I think I can speak for Ty when I say it just, when you know the people above you are working as hard as you are and putting in the same hours that you are, it inspires confidence in you. Where did you learn that work ethic and also the resilience when you have failed at things? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so I, I learned how to work from my dad. So uh, we came from a pretty modest, uh, my dad was a school teacher um, and uh, we had a pretty large family and I was the only boy, I had five sisters and we had a lot of work. And uh, the best thing ever was my dad had me as a sidekick since I was old enough to throw a hammer. So on a home, I can do anything on a home. Not very good, but I can do anything on a home, learn it all from my dad. So I learned how to work really, really hard for my father. And um, the, what was interesting, though, was I went to college for a year before uh, doing some missionary work. And I was like, hmm, I didn't apply myself very hard. I got caught up in the college life. And uh, I, my, my grades weren't that great. And I go off on a mission. I learned a whole bunch about who, what life's about and about what I could do. And I remember I applied to BYU. I wanted to go to BYU. I wanted to teach down there. I wanted to apply to BYU. And I heard back and they said, sorry, no. And it was crazy because at the time, like there was every reason to say, I just spent two years doing something for somebody else. They owe me something. Hmm. And I remember when I got that rejection letter, I was like, you know what? They're right. I didn't earn that right. But I made a decision right then. I said, but for the rest of my life, I will never, ever, ever be denied an opportunity because of my lack of preparation or my lack of effort. I'll fail and I'll get denied, but it'll never be because of my, of my lack of effort. So it was just, for me, Adam, it was a huge wake-up call which says you grind every day and you, do, you just, just never deny yourself an opportunity. And, um, you know... It paid off well. I came back. I uh, went back to my USU for a year and just got the grades and then transferred down to BYU and got the grades and ended up at Harvard and did really well at Harvard and, you know, surprised myself. And it was just simply the work ethic. I've always said, you know, um, you create luck out of hard work and you need a lot of luck to be successful in life. But the only thing you can control out of that is how hard you work. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where I learned it. That's why it's so important. It's crazy because that's the formula, right? Like how many people that haven't had the same level of success get a rejection letter, letter and say they're right? Usually it's someone else's fault. Like, oh, they don't know. Don't they know that I was right? I think that's, it's interesting. But, and then I think of the road that we've been on, like with the business, how many times we've tried things that haven't worked yeah. and you just readjust and, and go back at it. Um, you mentioned- well, And on that, one more thing. The other thing that really impacted my life was my first job. So I'm working for this consulting firm. And even to that point, I was still playing life pretty safe. I was still, you know, pushing myself to the point where I knew I'd be successful. So I still was pretty much defining my world of success. And I had a, I had a mentor named Steve Delano. Great, 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 great guy. He's my boss. And he taught me, he taught me through a, 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 a several experiences. He's like, Bywater, if you're not failing, if you're not failing, outright failing 20 to 30% of the time, you by definition are failing. And I'm like, I don't understand this. What are you talking about? He's like, if you're not pushing yourself to the point where well beyond your comfort zone, you're never going to achieve your full potential, right? And it changed my mind. It was like, no, you know what? It's okay to fail. I don't want to fail 90% of the time. But if I'm not failing 
10, 20, 30% of the time, then I'm not pushing myself hard enough. And that was a huge change mentally for me. And so it was like, work your fanny off and push yourself and then view failure as part of your equation for success. And that, I mean, honestly, that, that has changed my career more than I care to admit. Crazy you say that, because I, so I grew up skiing here in Utah, yeah. and I have an older brother who's four years older than me, and he would, my mom used to make um, my brother Matt take me with his friends every week, mm. so I just had to always keep up with them, right? But um, I would always crash, and I'd always like complain that it hurt, and I didn't want to, mm. ch- he would always like try and make me try stuff, like going off yeah. big jumps or cliffs or whatever, and I would say no, and finally one of his friends told me, he goes, if you're not crashing every single run that you're skiing, you're not trying hard enough. And so um, that principle has sort of always like stuck with me as well. And it's like, if you're not failing at something every now and again, you're not pushing yourself hard enough, right? And so um, it's interesting that that principle kind of manifests itself differently. But I think a lot of really successful people kind of have that same mindset. Yeah, I think they actually, they use it as a barometer on if they're successful or not. So. Well, if you think about sports, right? I mean, that's that's the game. It you is. try, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, and you just keep trying. It's hard to picture Adam as a little brother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like a well, forever big brother. But it's the know? same. It's the same thing with sales, right? If you're, if you go out and knock the first door and you sell it, and then you're done for the day, like you're just not pushing yourself mm-hmm. hard. Like, if you go out and have a successful day, you're going to have failed at least three or four or five times. Well, I think, I agree. Uh, You know, sales is what, 98% failure and 2% success, and those 2% success are phenomenal. Right. It holds you over. It's it's phenomenal. (laughs) It's like hitting a drive down the middle on 18. But you you have to be really, really, really good at failure and then learning and and then driving for that success. It's funny, in in companies, people are always like, well, how do you get companies to full potential? And I try. I try. If you, I think if you talk to people that work for me, I hope they would say, you know, when I go to Bywater and I talk to him, he never judges me on if I'm right or wrong. He judges me on have we learned and are we progressing, right? Because it, within a company, you want to breed that, that culture of success, which is you're going to fail a whole bunch, but are you winning the game? You know, you, you guys know my son loves football. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've always talked to him about life, about through sports. And I remember one day, you know, uh, he was like, he's in the car after the game, and uh, they won. And I'm like, but look at you. I mean, he was bloody. He was filthy. Grass stains everywhere, right? Had scuffs on his helmet. Just beat up, bruised. His body's all bruised. And I'm like, you had a whole bunch of failures. Not every run was flawless. Mm -hmm. You got tackled right and left, right? You got blocked. You got put on your butt, right? And there's so many failures, per se, to the ultimate victory of a win. And he was like, you know what? You're right. The road is bumpy. It's full of failures on my path to success. And it's just a mentality, whether it's for a person, uh, whether it's for a company. Um, so it's, it's all applicable. As a CEO, where, where does most of your time go? I think we have conversations and we see you in meetings and stuff, but what, how do you see your role? Where does, where does most of your energy and effort go? Um, so a lot of prioritization. Picking the right things to focus on. And- yeah, so my morning, my morning starts early. Uh, my morning has always started early. I've always been a 5 a.m.er. I wake up 5, 
Um, and then the and texts so, start rolling in. We know when you're up. You, you just know when I'm awake. We know when you're up. Yeah. <laughs> we've so, got to reply it to the East Coast texts from yeah. the night before first, right? <laughs> there you go. So he's got a few from me. Well, you guys, are late, said, you guys yeah. are late night creatures, and I'm a morning creature, so it's kind of interesting. We kind of cover the clock. But uh, in the morning, it's, it's uh, my drive into work. I'm always trying to prioritize my day. So you're like, 5 a.m. You're up. Is that what you said? 5 a.m. Up. You know, by the time you get you know through exercising and, and ex, you know food and get into work, I try to get in between seven and eight in the morning between the commute. So you really spend a lot of time prioritizing the day. And for me, I'm always trying to figure out. I I have the plan for the year, I have the plan for the quarter, and then I work on what has to happen by every group. And for me, I'm just trying to focus on the big boulders. I trust that you guys um, know all of the small and medium boulders. And I try to make sure that the big boulders are always being prioritized. And so I try to spend my time really listening to you guys to make sure I understand, you know, do we agree these are the big boulders? And I'm trying to remove barriers. I'm just trying to get those things done. So I fight a lot against making sure that the big boulder rises to the top and gets done. And there's a never-ending flow of these things. And uh, you're trying to feed the right groups so they all feel like they're making progress. So you spend a lot of time there. And then, you know, for me, uh, I truly try to bring up my time between shareholders. So I spend a fair time with the board or investors telling our stories. We got a great story. I, have, I try to spend enough time with our employees so I stay connected, right? And then I spend a lot of time with our leaders. I do one-on-ones on a regular basis, uh, trying to listen to them. And I try to listen 70% of the time and then propel on them 30% of the time stuff that I think is important. And... Uh, and then, uh, you know, a lot of recruiting. And it's really just trying to make sure that we're all hurting and going the right direction. Are we really trying to move the right direction? Has there ever been a time as CEO when you've gone into a meeting with, um, you know, one of our financing partners or you've been trying to recruit financing for the company that's intimidated you or you've been really nervous about going into? Um, I think a lot of our guys on a much smaller scale, that that pit in your stomach before you get out of your car is the mental challenge that you're constantly battling every day, right? And it's especially on like a cold day or whatever. But I wanna hear uh, on a much you know, different scale, those pits that you have in your stomach when you go into a meeting that you know is really important for the business or you know, something like that. Do you have, I mean, do you have anything like that where maybe your first you know, meeting back in New York or whatever? Uh, it happens. Um, it happens less, but it absolutely happens where you literally are like, you know, I'm just going to fake it until I make it. <laughs> um, you know, over time you get more confidence in yourself. And, uh, and then you also start to, as you get more senior, you, you feel like it's not about you at all. It's about your people. And the more I think about our people, um, the more confidence I have to be bold but with it but yeah there's uh, there's many times in my career where I have had to go in and give uh, bad news you know news that wasn't pleasant but it was the right news and um, I tell you what um, it has always paid off for me to tell me exactly how it was and what we had to do I remember uh, this company when I first took over uh, two weeks into it I called the board and said we got to meet and so we met in New York and had a three-hour uh, dinner, and um, you know they were shocked at the things I told them what we got to do differently and where we got to go. And um, you know, I'm sure they weren't that happy with the news, but they were super supportive. And what I've always noticed is, if you're transparent um, and you've got a plan and you own it, 
people will usually cheer for you to be successful. Where they don't cheer for you is that they feel like they're ever being hoodwinked, that you're trying to pawn it off on somebody else, and you don't want to show accountability. So if you literally will say, call it how you see it, um, show a plan on how you're going to improve it, and you stand behind it, you should have a, a lot of confidence to be bold. So It's so interesting that, that that's the same thing that a lot of our most successful reps do when a customer calls them, mm-hmm. right? They don't let the customer feel like they're being hoodwinked. They be transparent with them. They own a mistake if they've made a mistake. Yeah. And then they have a game plan to fix the problem, right? And it's so interesting that that same process applies to every single level. Um, so I, I got a story for you. Yeah. So this was when I first took over as the first time I moved from being a consultant to being a business owner. And I was running this business. It was in the healthcare industry. We were doing claims for the biggest uh, healthcare providers in the, in the United States. And it was my first company. And I, I, I was like trying to learn how to be a leader and try to not make any mistakes. I was still learning those things. And we found out that we had a leader uh, well below me who had done some stuff that was just wrong, just blatantly wrong. Uh, and they tried to hide it from the consumer or from our, from our, from our uh, client. And uh, at the time, I had a boss that I was working for. Uh, his name was Tom Blodgett. And Tom, I went to Tom and I said, Tom, this is what I found out. And really quickly, this is what I found out. And uh, it, could, it was like a really large client of ours. And within two minutes, he was on the call with me, with the client, and said, here's what we think we've discovered. We're still gonna do more due diligence, but we wanna make sure you heard it from us first, and we'll tell you what we found out. And that transparency um, bought us enormous goodwill with the customer, despite how big of a problem it was, they knew they could trust us. So a few years later, when I was the man, when I was in charge, um, we were chasing this large deal. This time I was running this company and we we're doing these massive transportation deals across the world. And these things, these, these deals would be a half a billion, 200 million, $300 million worth of contracts. Mm-hmm. And it'd take us a year and a half to close these deals. And we'd spend a million, $2 million chasing these deals. And we were doing a big deal in Mexico City. And uh, we had chased this thing for about a year and a half, probably spent well over a million, almost $2 million to win this big, big, big contract. And that the last minute we found out that our sales rep, who was responsible for this deal, had found out what the competitor had bid. And that's a, that's a no-no in the industry. Huge no-no, about, right? Okay. That is proprietary information that we should not know. <laughs> yeah. And somehow our sales person found out what the other competitor was going to bid on this thing so we could underbid them. I found out about it. And um, within 30 seconds, I called up that person that we were bidding this, this, this body. And I said, we're out. We have information we shouldn't have. We've disqualified ourselves. And then, and then I called our CEO, Ursula Burns, and told this her. Is, mind you, this is a year and a company. half. You spent a year, year and, and a half chasing this A year thing. and a half chasing the deal. Spent over a million dollars, right? I wonder what and the then I called our CEO, <laughs> And then I called our CEO and I said, hey, here's what I found out. And I've withdrawn ourselves from the, the, the competition. And we were, we, were, we were banking on that, that booking, right? And she's like, thank you. You did the right thing. It was never questioned, right? And uh, it sent a huge message to our whole organization, which is we win and we do it the right way, right? And you have zero tolerance for not doing it the right way. And, um, you know, I had the confidence to do that. 
because I had seen my leader do it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's the only way to live. That's the only way to lead. And the, the goodwill that you get, because it, it comes back and pays off in dividends, right? Doing the right thing the right way always pays off in the long run. And, uh, and anyways, those are two examples, Adam, uh, that, uh, that just reinforced my mind. That's the only way to, to run a business. It's really important, man, because think about it. It's like the short-term mentality that urges you to ah, just, we've spent so much money, we've spent so much time. Yeah. Is there another way? Well, but I don't know. I think it's interesting because your reputation, right? And in and, and our industry. Reputation is all that matters. It, we all talk. We all know yeah. each other. It all follows, right? And so if you're tempted to do a deal the wrong way or something like that, it might, it might be the thing that feels good for a second, but reputation in the industry matters. Well, you see it all the time. You see it all the time with reps, especially during big competitions. Yeah. Whenever we find something that uh, a rep shouldn't have done, it's typically during a competition and they, they rationalize it with, oh, it didn't actually harm the customer. You know, they, you know, they're the n- none the wiser or whatever. And in their minds, they sort of talk themselves into it. Yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden it gets found out and then, you know, we have to deal with it, right? So we got to deal with it. And and I've always said to guys, I said, guys, don't ever chase that hundredth sell. You've done ninety nine right perfectly. Mm-hmm. Don't ever jeopardize or trade in your reputation for that hundredth one. It's just, it's never worth it. It's just wrong. Yeah, I remember um, speaking about confidence earlier. You you mentioned something that I wanted to touch on because uh, I've often said that confidence is to a salesperson what like fitness is to an athlete. You just if you, you have such an advantage if you can get the confidence. Um, and I was watching a, an interview with Conor McGregor. You ever mm. watch Conor's interviews? I, I have seen several of them, yes. And they're colorful, yeah. man. Yeah. But he shows up you to... You kind of look a little like Connor. I appreciate just a little that, bit. Ties are Connor. You got that confidence, too. Oh, I didn't bring yeah, it up. I wasn't fishing I'm here, just no. saying. <laughs> I'm just calling it how I see it. So he, uh, he comes to this interview with Fox, and he shows up to the interview shirtless with his championship belt on. Mm. So just this confident guy. And they asked him, they said, where does your confidence come from? And he says, it's two things. He's like, I know I've put in the work. Mm. So when I was thinking about your preparation, like Adam asked you earlier, have you been in these situations where like, oh, this is a big deal, this is a big meeting, it makes me nervous. But remembering that you said, I'll never miss an opportunity for lack of preparation gives you confidence. So I hope our salespeople are listening because they find themselves in gut churning moments all the time. But first thing is the confidence. And the second thing he said was, I know I'm on the right team. So when I see somebody else, another team trying another thing, he's, he doesn't come into the locker room being like, hey, they're doing this, we got to switch. So he's like, I've put in the work and I'm on the right team. So he's got this superhuman confidence. So maybe talk to the reps for a mm. second about what, maybe how you would do this job with the life lessons that you have now. Uh, you have this opportunity to go into the field, to go into the industry as it is now, but maybe as a, as a salesperson. What advice would you give to the people that are that are working here? Well, that's a good question, um, and I agree with you. Uh, you know, for me, uh, I've run a few companies, and so when I get dropped into a new company, you you really do rely upon. Wait a minute, I don't know anything. I I, I know some things, but I, I probably know less than I should, mm-hmm. and I've always found my way to work out of it, and so. Your history does give you confidence to embrace the future. Um, and I think with our reps every day, you know, for most of them, our really successful reps, it's interesting, I go out and I interview them, right? I talk to our best folks. And I always hear the same stuff. 
they know that they got a, a routine. If they stick to the routine, if they focus on the inputs, they trust that the outputs will happen, mm. right? And um, I've learned that from a lot of people I've worked for. They said, if you'll, just, if you'll trust the input, um, that you'll get the output you want, just prove it, right? And so our folks, it's like interesting. I was talking to, uh, I was talking to um, one of our reps the other day. It was Jennifer Raft. Mm. And Jennifer, I said, Jennifer, how'd you do it? You came in and you set the world on fire. You know, Joyce H. Chow did it before as one of our first females that just rocked the world. And then you came in and you rocked it again. And uh, how'd you do it? And she goes, it's really simple. I just treat my job like a full-time job. And she goes, I know I want to get so many ACs a week, at, which turned into so many welcome calls, which turned into so many permits. And I just work until I achieve that goal. And it was so simple, yeah. right? Her, her approach to uh, work was, I'm just going to do the work. And she knows we've got a great product to sell, and we've got a great organization behind it to fulfill for her. And she just trusted the inputs. And I think it's first and foremost. It's like, what's your routine? And you have to do the work. And our best, most successful professionals, our best athletes are all the ones that trust the process. And they put in the work. And they get extraordinary results. Um, most people today want to get something that they haven't worked for to achieve. Or they want it way too early. I want the title 10 years too early. Yeah. I want the income 20 years too early. Right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to put that. I want to put in one third the work effort. If they're really being honest with themselves and they talk to our most successful people, you'll see a stark contrast in expectations, work ethic, and then keeping grounded. You know, the folks who say, you know, they never believe the press about themselves and they say, I got to earn it again tomorrow. Those are the folks that are mo most successful. And as a result, they're super confident, um, but they're confident. And they're, I I've always said to my kids, if there's two things I could bless you with, one is to be extremely, extremely grateful for anything you have. And then second is to be super aggressive to do better in life. And if you can marry those two things, extremely grateful, but never, you know, never, um, uh, basically, you never settle, like you're gonna have a great life. And you see our professionals who do the best, they seem to have that perfect blend. They're super grateful, and they still have a high motor still going at it, and they trust the process. I wanna pivot here a little bit and get into some fun stuff. First thing is, I wanna hear, like you, you all I know is you're, a lot, I know a lot about your career and what you've done over you know, a lot of your accomplishments. What's the craziest thing you've ever done that like maybe your wife is like, wait, you're doing what? <laughs> well, we can get in trouble with this question. <laughs> we can get in trouble. Um, I think uh, you know, a few years ago, I ran with the bulls in Pamplona, not once but twice. Wow. And that was crazy. It was like, what am I doing? You like did two laps? <laughs> no, no, no. I did it. I did you it slapped once. Him from behind. As I you did were. it once, and uh, I went to. I was in. I was in Barcelona for a training. I got the train, went up to to Pamplona, and I wanted just to watch it. And then I'm there, and I'm like, you know, if I don't do, I met these kids. There was these four student, three students from uh, University of Texas, and they were over there. And I'm like, hey, I'll run if you guys run. And I'm like, I'm like 20 years older than them. I mean, I'm not 20. I was like 15. Right? I was probably mid 30s. And they're all in their early twenties. I'm like, they're if you run, I'll run. run. <laughs> yeah. If I run. and they're like, okay, yeah, we'll run. And we're all there in the middle of Pamplona. 
uh, the the firecrackers about ready to go off and the bolts are going to get released. And everyone's jumping up and down and singing in Spanish. I don't I don't understand a word. And I look around <laughs> and all of a sudden, slowly but surely, all of these kids that agreed to run with me started to disappear. They're getting cold feet and they're bailing on us, <laughs> right? So two of them bail and I grabbed the third one. I'm like, no, 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 we're doing this together. And we did it and it was crazy. It was just absolutely crazy. I remember I thought... Everyone's inebriated. I'm not. And I'm running. I'm jumping over people. And I'm thinking, I'm running so fast. I'm clearly not in great <laughs> shape. I'm like, I'm going to absolutely finish this course. And I swear, within like, before I knew it, the crowd is screaming. I look behind me, and there's a bull right on me. Right on me. So oh I jump God. up on the fence, and the bull goes around me. And I'm like, I almost died. And I jump down, and like, euphoria. And so we finished the run, and this guy's with me, and we're hugging each other. And <laughs> She's like, your was, best friend. We're like, bet, yeah, they're like, we just survived this <laughs> yeah. event. And then we see his two friends show up, and they are just sheepish. They're just like, here's my man card, right? I yeah. just, I completely. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, you know what? If you're going to live life, just like live it. Just live it, right? And just go for it. And don't pass up those amazing opportunities. And uh, that was, uh, you know, crazy. And then I took my boy back a few years later. He was only seven at the time. And he didn't run with me, but he watched, and we did it again. And it was say, as fun as like the second. a good time. idea, run with the bulls. Run with the bulls, your son. So it was <laughs> just, but it was just fun. And um, it was just a blast. And I have a lot of experience like that where, you know, it's just like you got to take advantage of the opportunities. And, and we got a culture like that, right? Our, our, our people, uh, they're, they're born that way. They, they're adventurous, which is great. But it's just like, you know. But run with the bulls was probably one of my crazier things I did. Well, let's talk about the culture here because that, I think that you're – Adam and I were talking earlier, there's not many places that we've mentioned in travel that you haven't been. And I, as a CEO, it might be, it might seem, I don't know how you explain this one to the, to the board, but we do this international trip every year. So we're a right. couple of weeks away from going to Fiji. Right. One of our first conversations happened, was that in Costa Rica? Yeah, um, I've been there for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. We've, been to, we've been to Thailand, we've been to Tahiti. Mm. Um, it might seem counterproductive to take your sales force out of the market fly them halfway around the world for a week of celebration and no production. I feel like you're talking them out of it. <laughs> you're right. It's a terrible idea. Should we stop? We Should we not do it anymore? Um, so talk about that. How do we try Speaking to... Speaking of tough decisions <laughs> next year. Why, why spend time, energy, and effort on those experiences? Well, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's an easy decision. Uh, we're a meritocracy, right? And you want to celebrate people doing extraordinary things. And most of us are ordinary trying to become extraordinary. And when you see our top five, six, seven percent of our uh, professionals um, ringing the bell and doing what we've asked them to do, you want to celebrate that, right? And I, I learned this lesson at Bain. Bain was um, an amazing. It was a strategy consulting firm, but it had like the best. It was always the, it was the the thoroughbreds uh, in that world, just phenomenal people. And we had a, a saying. It was like you know, work hard, play hard. And we worked really hard, like our people here work really hard, and we played really hard. Um, we always had these events where you went off to and your best performers were celebrated and you had a chance to connect with them one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, I love working with you guys. I love working with all of our sales leaders. They're phenomenal people, people who I respect personally. I mean, I know your wives, right? I mean, I, I, I know your families. Like, I know your daughter's names. I know your boys' names, right? Like, you just love that connection, that personal connection. Um, when you're celebrating, also ringing the bell, professionally that works for them personally and for the company it's like it recharges the batteries mm -hmm. 
and uh, it has this personal connection where, you know, you guys respect me and trust me, and I respect and trust you more because we we see more than just the work relationship. Um, we realize we're human. We all have our our uh, strengths and our weaknesses, and I think it's a great way for us to celebrate. And it's a meritocracy, though. Our best performers should be celebrated, and we celebrate with them, and it's a great time. Yeah. What do you want to be known for? Uh, at some point, you're going to hang it up with your career, or do you do you envision yourself ever retiring? But if you do, what is the thing that when people look back and say, "Oh yeah, I worked with Bywater," what are, what are the things that you envision them saying about you as a leader? Well, my wife won't let me retire. I can't say the word, but I'm going to retire at some point. Just don't tell her. Don't just need her like an part. extra like clubhouse in back so she can have her space. Where do you go? I don't know. <laughs> Little motorcycle so. workshop to tinker. <laughs> um, I think there's just two things that I hope that people do uh, remember about me. I think one is, you guys know my favorite saying, celebrate the genius of the end rather than the tyranny of the or. So I hope they're going to say, hey, he did it, and he did it the right way. It's always the and, right? Always asking all of our people to do it and do it the right way. Um, and I hope they also remember he got more out of me and out of that company than we ever thought was possible. So I hope that they feel like that our interactions that they're that they literally like I didn't know I had that in me I I and they have higher expectations for themselves and um, I, I take a lot of pride in trying to get full potential out of companies and out of people and I, I hope I do that more often than not well and that's where fulfillment comes from too I think that's what makes us happy of our work and ignited and not burnt out um, maybe last question for um, the employees that work here what do you what are you excited about uh, with this time? What are you excited about with the solar industry? And um, what vision do you hope they capture? Um, that's a great question to end on. So you guys have heard me talk about the 100-year wave. Yeah. You know, every 100 years is supposed to be this massive wave. It usually comes through Portugal. Uh, it usually happens in October where you have these 100-foot waves. And then you'll have these 100-year waves that just are freaks of nature, right? Uh, everything converges. And... Uh, I, I've, I've often said over the years that I feel like that what we're doing at Vivint and here at Vivint Solar now is our opportunity to be on this 100-year wave. And when we finish riding this wave, you'll talk about it the rest of your life. You'll always talk about this confluence of, you know, basically disrupting an industry, right? Um, working with phenomenal people, um, building a great company really enjoying it every day of your life, your personal growth, right? I, I just, I, I've seen a lot of companies. I'm 49 years old. I've worked for some phenomenal people. Um, I have gone to some phenomenal schools, right? I've, I've seen a few things. I feel like a commercial. I feel like it's the, the farmer's commercial. <laughs> We've seen a few things. I've seen a few things. And um, we really have something unique here. And I hope that people appreciate the 100-year wave we're on. And uh, that is, um, that's, that's what really gets me motivated, is that we're doing that. I don't want to run an old industry. I want to go create a new industry. I want to be a disruptor. I want to leave a mark on creating a brand new industry that needs to be created. Uh, and I share that simply because I think all of us have to do that, right? You've only got so much time. Our people get paid really well. We have a great time. And if you don't feel like you're making a huge mark on what you do, you should probably do something different. And I think for the vast majority of our people, they're like, hey, wait a minute, that checks the box really, really well. And I get to make a great income, and I get to work with phenomenal people, 
and I got to make the world better. And, you know, for us, we're really, really lucky that we got to do what we do today. And I hope our employees feel that. I hope they catch that vision that when we're all finished with this, we'll look back on it and say, not only was it, it had a massive impact, but it was the 100 year wave of my career. And, and they talk about it for the rest of their time. That's what I hope they catch the vision of. Well, that's great. Well, we appreciate you sitting down with us. There's been a lot of universally um, applicable nuggets of wisdom. And thank you for your time, for your leadership. And thank you for joining us. This has been another episode of Electric People. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric. <laughs>